0: Amen. And now, as you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word and turn in God's Word to John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. That is page 843 if you're using the Pew Bible. John 10, beginning in verse 22. This is God's Word, and so I'll pray for us as we prepare to read it. Great God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would show to our hearts and our minds the infinite value of your word, your word that is true, not in part, but the whole. How your word, through the blessing of the Spirit, is the means whereby we are quickened, we are saved, and that forever. So oh God, would we all hear this word? word this morning, with the ears of faith, with the eyes of faith. Impress it upon us, Lord. Leave an indelible mark that can never be wiped away. Let us not be like those hearers who receive it with joy in the morning, but forget it this afternoon. But God, let us be a people in whom the word of the gospel, the seed of the gospel, takes deep root and bears much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. John 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. You may be seated. When classes start to wind down, and a final exam is on the horizon, teachers will often have practice exams, review quizzes, or if you're a particularly fun teacher, maybe a round of Jeopardy, in order to prepare your students to sit for the test. All the material from the semester is collected and condensed into that very dense review. If you have not been paying attention all semester, that review quiz will be particularly daunting. But if you have been listening to the professor, you've been taking good notes, well then you realize that the concepts that once seemed obscure or difficult to you are now very clear, and you have attained some level of mastery over the subject of hand. In the text this morning, we come to the end of yet another term, we might call it, or another phase in Jesus' ministry called the later Judean ministry. Everything from chapter 7 up until verse 40 that we read in our text, that is, his going up to the Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, his pardoning the woman caught in adultery, the I am statements of I am the light of the world, and I am the door and the good shepherd, all of these events have taken place in the window of October to December in Judea. And then, verse 40, we see that Jesus is about to begin a new chapter. He turns the page. He went away again across the Jordan, that is east, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. There Jesus is going to remain for chapters 11 till 1211, when Jesus enters triumphantly, into the city of Jerusalem for his Passion Week. That place where John, Bethany of the Jordan, where he had been baptizing, Jesus lays low, and his ministry continues thereafter. And so as we're wrapping up this section, we're wrapping up this semester of Jesus' ministry, all of the information that we've studied thus far, it seems, is condensed and packed into this pericope. Because think of it, uh, we have the purpose of Jesus' works is described for us. We've talked about that. Jesus asserts his unity and his equality with the Father, both in his essence and in his aims. We have talked about that. The image of the Good Shepherd that we studied last week, it is coursing through the text even this morning. We've talked about that as well. And once again, Jesus, exegete that he is, goes back to an Old Testament text and uses it as a form of argument his messianic identity as the son of God. This is all very familiar to us. It's as though John, the gospel writer, is saying, here are the big takeaways from this section. Here is the review. Make sure that you are good on these. These truths are being riveted into our minds and brought in this concentrated form in order that we would believe in Jesus Believe in Jesus. That is the thrust of the whole gospel. It's the summary statement, John 20, verse 31. But these are written, but this whole gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the answer that we must give for this final exam. And it is pass or fail. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe in what he has said? And do we believe in what he has done? So what we're going to do, that believe is going to be the controlling word of our time this morning. We're going to look at the text under three points. First, under uh, verses 22 to 26, we find the marks of those who do not believe. What characterizes those that do not believe? Verses 22 to 26, the marks of those who do not believe. Then, verses 27 to 30, The marks of those who do believe. What is true of those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior? And then third and finally, another plea to repent and believe. Even after these men have stubbornly rejected Jesus up to this point, he calls upon them to consider his works in order that they may know that he and the Father are one. And so with these three points together, what I want to stress for us this morning, the great review of this later Judean ministry, is this. That the mark of a true sheep is that they believe in Christ's words and his works. The mark of true sheep is that they believe in his words and his works. Before going into the first point, you notice the context. Jesus loves to use high holy days in the Jewish year as a springboard for the revelation of his messianic identity. He feeds the 5,000 during the Passover season. He declares that he is the light of the world at the feast of booths or tabernacles. And here, though it's not one of the three mandatory pilgrimage festivals, it is a highlight in the Jewish year. Verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who Uh, are not uh, terribly aware of Jewish holidays, you have certainly heard of this one. It is Hanukkah. This is the Feast of Dedication, the Festival of Lights. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but suffice it to say for now that when the Syrian invaders, Antiochus Epiphanes, of whom Daniel 7 and uh, those visions spoke of that, that evil one who would come with the horns and would conquer and destroy, the abomination of desolation, that's read of in Daniel chapter 9. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he does is he sacrifices a pig in the temple of God in a, as an offering to Zeus, and in so doing, desecrates the temple. They're under the tyranny of Antiochus Epiphanes for three years. That is until a man named Judas Maccabeus comes and cleanses the temple and rededicates it. So it's the feast of dedication in the year 164 B.C. So, it's the winter. Hanukkah, you know, uh, always falls very near to our Christmas, and so it is the winter. That explains why Jesus is walking in the temple under the colonnade of Solomon. It's rainy outside. It's our cold season. It's their rainy season. And so he uses this feast of dedication as an opportunity to highlight that he is the true Messiah, The one to whom his people must look, not for a militaristic savior, but for a spiritual savior. So, with that bit of context, our first point, the marks of those who don't believe. What are the marks of those that don't believe in Jesus? Verses 22 to 26. The challenge comes in verse 24, when the Pharisees come and they say to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, the first mark of those who don't believe is that they reject Christ's words and they reject his works. We see that uh, in Jesus' response. I told you, it is with words, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me the marks of those who don't believe in Jesus, those who reject his words, I told you, but you did not believe, and those who deny his works. They seemed very clear before, you remember. Uh, they say here, don't keep us in suspense anymore. Just be clear with us. Tell us who you are. They seemed to be very clear before, because what happened in John chapter 5? that was when the plot to assassinate Jesus really started to pick up steam. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath when he healed the man who had been uh, crippled uh, by the pool, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew what Jesus was saying. They're feigning ignorance here. Furthermore, after John uh, 8.58, where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. What did they try to do? Pick up stones to kill him. The problem is not with Jesus' words. It's not a lack of clarity on his part. It is that these men are stubborn. And they don't want to believe. They will not be convinced, even by a clear statement of who Jesus is. So they deny his words. But they also Second Mark, they deny his works. You remember, they said to the man who had been healed of his blindness, give glory to God. Don't highlight Jesus. Don't platform Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner. They're trying to rob Jesus of the clear testimony of his person by denying him the works he performs. Now, let's suppose for a moment that you're skeptical about a person who claims to be a world renowned surgeon. And then that surgeon invites you, the skeptic, to come and to be in the observational gallery to watch surgery firsthand. The surgeon performs a grueling, hours long surgery upon the brain, and it's the most complex surgery known to man. Nobody else is able to do this except this one very skilled physician, and he's successful. And then he walks from the operating room and without saying a word, he just looks at you to which you say, how long will you keep me in suspense? Tell me now if you're a surgeon. Some of you actually did this. You said, yeah, that surgeon doesn't owe you an answer at all because that surgeon has proven to you exactly who he is by virtue of the works he has performed. And so Jesus does not owe these men an answer. He doesn't owe them one more word, because what do they want? They want Jesus to say the magic words, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. The problem with that, and the reason I think Jesus doesn't do that, is because he knows that if he were to just make that blanketed statement, what are they going to think? Well, that he's like Judas Maccabeus. That he is the militaristic Messiah that we've been looking forward to. Because the identity of the Messiah, of the Christ, has been so convoluted and confused, he's not just going to give that blanketed statement because he knows that they won't get it anyway. And so he points them back to the words that he has said. Before Abraham was, I am. What else could that mean but that he is divine? And he has shown them his works. Who else opens the eyes of the blind? Who else makes the lame leap like the deer? Who else realizes and fulfills the great expectation of Isaiah 35? None but me. None but God. And why is it that these people don't believe? Ultimately, it is because they are not among Christ's sheep. That's what he says. You don't believe in me. You deny my word, you deny my works, because you're not my sheep. We could say it this way, it's not because of what they choose, because of who they are. The reason they don't see is because they're not his sheep. The problem, we've said this before, is never with the proof, it is always with the person themselves. The proof of Christ being the Son of God is airtight, undeniable, unassailable, unassailable, open and close, it is crystal clear. The problem, all the while, has been with the observer and their refusal to accept the truth of God that is so plainly in front of him. The problem is not that we're doing wrong things. That is a problem, okay? But that is a symptom of the much deeper problem. It is the problem of our nature, of our very souls. We are dead in trespasses and sins. The reason why sinful man is dead set against God is because he is dead in trespasses and sins. Because we still have that heart of stone and we do not yet have a heart of flesh. And so does this not speak and highlight all the more the grace of God that he doesn't come to people that are sympathetic to the truth of the gospel. People that were 75% of the way there and then. He just makes up the difference and says, well, so and sos a good guy. She's a very pious woman. No, the condition of every human heart is that we were dead on arrival, that we would refuse to believe the gospel. Even if Jesus Christ were to stand in front of us, we would say no. These men did. They beheld the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt bodily, and they balked at him. And so doesn't this make the grace of God And his condescension, all the more amazing. We were so lost, but so great was his love that he came to seek and to save those who were lost and to give us new hearts. You see, what's happening here is not that you become Christ's sheep when you listen to his voice, as we'll speak about in a moment, but listening to him, receiving his message following after him. These are the consequences of having been made his sheep by his sovereign grace. There's nothing that we can do to qualify ourselves to be numbered among Christ's flock, but it is from start to finish an act of his grace in having chosen us before the foundation of the world and in time changing our hearts to hear his call of salvation. So this is the sad condition of those who do not believe. And the reason why they don't believe, because they are not Christ's sheep. So they won't hear his voice. But this leads us to our second point, the marks of those who do believe. What is true of all those who call Christ their shepherd? Verses 27 to 30, our second point. First, we see their character. What do sheep do? What are the telltale signs of of Christ's sheep. The first is that they hear his voice. They hear his voice. Their hearts and their minds are responsive to the gospel. Whatever God says, that's what goes. There are no ifs. There are no buts. There are no qualifications. There is no, well, God, that seems a bit severe when you talk about the fallen condition of mankind. I mean, isn't there... Something in us that's redemptive. Isn't there something in us that could cause you to love me? The Bible says no. Even the image of God in man, though it's not altogether destroyed, it is hopelessly marred and will not pass muster before the justice of uh, God. And so, the, the one who hears Christ's voice acknowledges that Christ is the only hope of salvation. And when we listen to Christ... We listen to him alone. We do not have Christ's plural in our lives. Jesus said that his sheep listen to him and they listen only to him. Consider um, verse 10. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is the only one to whom you listen to now, Christian. Whatever he says goes. There are lots of talking heads. You can find them on YouTube, on the internet, in your Wall Street Journal. But there is only one Christ to whom you follow in every matter of life. We follow Christ implicitly, without hesita- hesitation or reservation. He is our shepherd. And the voice of all others are to be drowned out. They are to be alien and strangers to us. This is where Adam and Eve went wrong in the garden. They entertained the strange voice of another. Did God really say? And so those seeds of doubt gave birth to sin. So we see that the sheep listen and know the voice of their shepherd, but they also follow after him. What good is it, my brothers, if you merely receive the word but we are not doers of the word. When you hear Christ's voice, you know that you have truly heard him when you follow after him thereafter. Just as with those who are not Christ's sheep, our listening and our following after Christ, we see our obedience to him. This doesn't make us his sheep. This is just the necessary consequence. We don't listen to him or follow after him. It's not the result of our our decision but rather this is just the reflex of sheep following after their shepherd and that following scripture says will be difficult it will be costly Jesus says so in Matthew's gospel if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The mark of a true disciple of sheep is that they listen to and follow after Jesus. It is costly, as the world reckons things, but when we consider the momentary afflictions of this life, they're not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us, to where our shepherd leads. So we know sheep because they listen, and they follow. But there's also tremendous blessings that are peculiar to Christ's sheep, that sheep, or goats if you'd rather, to use an illustration elsewhere, that they don't know, that they don't possess. Uh, One of the marks, aside from just our character that we listen and we follow, is also the blessings that are ours, the untold blessings. What I love about this is that John chapter 10, you remember last week, we made a point of connection between Isaiah 53, 6, but also Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is written from the vantage point of the sheep, talking about his love for the shepherd. It's David saying that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. John 10 is written from the vantage point of the shepherd, and his love for his sheep. So Psalm 23 causes us to look up and see Jesus, the good shepherd, and rejoice in him, but John 10 teaches us that the good shepherd rejoices over us. This bond of love, it's not one-sided. It's not just that the sheep love the shepherd, but the shepherd holds his nose when he thinks about his sheep. No, he loves us. Listen to the way, like Psalm 23, he uses that personal pronoun, my, my sheep. They know my voice. They follow after me. Jesus loves us with an intimacy, with a delight that this world will never know. That it cannot know unless they come to Jesus. And so what we see here, as I'm going to list the benefits, the first is that all of Christ's sheep, they're known. The second is that they receive eternal life. And the third is that they are forever kept. They're known. Jesus says, I know my sheep. You know the difference between knowing of someone and knowing someone. When someone It's a small world, brings up the name of a loved one or a relative or or a friend, and you say, oh, that's my friend. You're quick to establish that personal connection. Well, so it is with Jesus. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is not ashamed to say that these are my sheep, that these are my precious ones, my little ones. These are my sheep. He knows us. And just as a father knows the needs of his children, so God in Christ knows your needs. He knows what you need for daily bread. He knows what you suffer. He was tempted and tried in every way we are, except without sin. Jesus knows us. He knows our condition. He knows the lives that we live. He knows our needs, whether they be material or spiritual. And he knows our way. The future may be very dark and foreboding as you see things, But for Christ, he knows where he is leading you. He is not an aimless shepherd. He is taking you to his house, to his father's house, where there are many rooms. And and in the same way that we love listening to persons who have age and experience and wisdom, that we love to come to them for counsel because it's almost as though they, they know exactly what we're going through. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. Christian, you are known. You are known in your person. Your way is known. Everything that needs to be known, Christ knows about you. And so we should have our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and praise. That he so cares for us, he numbers the hairs on our head, he knows us by name. We're known by our shepherd. We also see that all of Christ's lambs, they receive eternal life. They receive eternal life. Eternal life is your possession right now. It's not something that awaits you in the future entirely. Eternal life began the day that you believed in Jesus. God had foreordained in eternity past that in time he would call you, and in that moment you became a citizen of heaven. What else does that mean when Scripture says that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, if not that we are in possession in part of that kingdom right now? Not that we will be citizens of heaven, but that we are right this very minute. It may not feel like it, but it's true. This is our brother Josh preached in Sunday evening last week, Hebrews chapter 12. It, sort of peels back the veneer of life as we see it, and he shows us that we have come to heavenly Mount Zion. That we have come, not to a mountain that can be touched like Mount Sinai, but we have come to a mountain that is just surrounded in a festal gathering where there are angels and the saints from of old who together cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's where you live now, Christian. That is the citizen... That is the kingdom of which you are a citizen. So believe Christ. This is your possession, even now. So we receive eternal life, and it will never be taken from us. That is the great comfort of this chapter, isn't it? This is one of those key texts that when we go to it, uh, we find the perseverance of the saints. We find the perseverance of the saints. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So why is it that we persevere? Why is it that we continue in this state of salvation? It's not because of our righteousness. It's not because of good behavior. It is because we are kept by Christ. We are kept by the Father and by the Holy Spirit who, once he regenerates us, will never withdraw our heart of flesh and give us back a heart of stone. No, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, section 3. I'd call you to meditate on that this afternoon. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Christ, and the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. It's a better covenant. From which all ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So what that means is that the reason you persevere The reason why John 36, 39, Philippians 1, 6, Romans 8, for neither uh, life or death, angels, rulers, things present or things to come can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. The reason why that's true is because Christ is true. He is unchangeable in His being and His promises are irrevocable. He is immutable in His person and in all of His promises. You see, now I hope why doctrine and the study of doctrine is its own application. Many people are just quick to tell me what I need to do. Tell me the application. Give me five points that can help improve my life. That's lazy. And it will only get you so far. But when you apprehend these precious doctrines of Scripture, when you remember that neither height nor depth, angels, demons, nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ, does that not give you peace and security? Do not those unshakable truths make you unshakable as you go about this tempestuous and this stormy world? It should. This is good news. And not only, I love how verse 29 says this, not only are you safe in the hands of Jesus, but you're also safe in the Father's hands. It's almost as though there's this seal that's put over you together with the Spirit. That the Father who has chosen a people for himself, the immutable and unchangeable decree of election, that you have that coupled with Christ's perfect work and the Spirit at work in us who will never be withdrawn. Your salvation is airtight, kept in heaven for you. There is no way we can fall away. And this is all a result, as we've talked about before, this oneness. That's how Jesus can come and say that the Father and I are united in this sentiment, that there will be no one to snatch my sheep out of my hand or my Father's hand because we are one. We are one in sentiment and purpose because we are one in being. One in working, one in being. And so now, with all that, you would think, certainly, they're going to respond positively to this. Will they consider the blessings that, are, that would be theirs if they would repent and they would believe in Christ as he's revealed himself? No, they double down. Well, these men want to pick up more stones, and they want to do away with Jesus. Verse 32, Jesus confronts them. This is our third point now. Another plea to repent and believe, 31-42. to 42. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones uh, to kill him. But Jesus says, consider the works again. Just just stop, pause, consider what I have done. These bear witness to me that I am sent from the Father. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then Jesus goes into that Old Testament interpretation that I spoke of at the head. He says, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? The context of this is Psalm 82. This is Psalm 82, verse 6, wherein God sets up court. Court is in session among the rulers and the judges of the world. And he does not like what he sees. And in Psalm 82, verse 6, they are referred to as gods. Lowercase g, that's significant. Not because these persons are divine, but because they have been put there by the divine God himself in order to minister after the manner of God. So these men are given sovereignty. Earthly kings and judges and rulers are given sovereignty, and they are to exercise righteousness after the manner of him who put them in those positions. So he says, you don't balk when in Psalm 82.6, mere men are called gods, when they are called sovereigns, we might call it. And yet, here I am, having been sent by the Father himself, consecrated by him, and sent into the world, and you object to my me calling myself the Son of God. He's arguing, using scripture, from the lesser to the greater. If you can say it of these lesser men, then how is it inappropriate for me to call myself the Son of God, when in fact, that is who I am. I am divine. He's backing them into a corner. Now, of course, they're going to say, well, we don't believe that because you haven't proven it to us. See words and works. right? Go back and see what he has said. See what he has done. But here, he's pointing again to the Old Testament saying that I'm not bringing anything out of left field, guys. I'm simply being and demonstrating to you, and speaking of myself in a manner that accords with my person. I am God. And knowing that they will reject this, Jesus points them back and says, if you won't believe my words, and even if you fuss with my exegesis of Psalm 82, look at my works again. Circle back to my works. Because if you really understand these works for what they are, what does he say will happen? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Go back to the works. Consider what I have done. And then square my words with what you've seen. So, as we conclude this morning, after the manner of Jesus here, The assumption of every preacher is that uh, there will be some within the sound of his voice who have yet to close with Christ. Uh, That they have not yet trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. They're following other voices. They're following after the voice of strangers and not necessarily following the shepherd's voice. And even if you would reject everything that I've said this morning, you would say that it is hard, that it is obscure, uh, that it's not clear. God has been clear in his word who you are and who Jesus is. But even if you were to reject his word, after the manner of Jesus, I'd call on you to consider Jesus' work. And what is that great work that he performed? That great work that ought to force us to ponder and to consider can he really be the Christ? Has everything that he said actually been true? That work to which I would turn you is his death and resurrection upon the cross. Because his body is not there. Jesus did die, but on the third day he rose again from the dead. And that empty tomb is its own argument that Jesus is precisely who he claimed to be. That by his own authority he laid down his life for the sheep, and on the third day, by his own authority, He raised Himself up from the dead, together with the Father and the Spirit. He said so as the Good Shepherd. And so what do you make of the cross? What do you make of the empty grave? Consider these. Consider the fact that we will never find Jesus here on earth and what that means. It means that He is God. And so if that's true, it means that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then you will die in your sins. It means that if you have yet to repent of your sin, that you must come to Christ in faith and know this, He will accept you. Even if you have rejected Him before, Christ will have you. He is such a shepherd that when He hears the bleeding of one of His sheep whom the Father had given Him before the foundations of the world, He comes running. He seeks that one, even if it has wandered far and long from the 99. And so will you. Will you believe what the Bible says about you? Do you see the reason, perhaps, why you don't yet believe? It's because you're not Christ's sheep. But when you call out to Christ, what does the Bible say? That those who cry out for a shepherd, He hears them. He sees them. He knows them. He will pursue them. If you seek, you will find. Knock, it will be answered to you. So this text this morning, has taught us about why people don't believe, not just because they've chosen poorly. It's not because they have this autonomous will whereby they could choose God but choose not to accept and know. The problem runs much deeper than that. It's because they have a problem in their very souls, in their hearts. There's not something wrong merely with the choices we make, but with our very selves. And so for all those who this morning have been confronted with their weakness, with their poverty of spirit, Jesus calls it, with their helplessness, their aimlessness, with with the certain end of all those who do not know Christ as their shepherd, know this, that if you call out, that if you bleat like a desperate sheep looking for a shepherd, for someone to rescue, Christ will come. Christ will save, and he will never let you go. This text has taught us that the mark of true sheep is that they believe Christ's words, and they believe his work. They believe the word of the gospel, the only hope of salvation, and they bank their hope, all their assurance, everything on that empty tomb. Christ Jesus is the shepherd the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep and has never lost a one. Would you be among those sheep? None have ever been snatched out. And so I will call you to repent. Repent of your sins. Believe in this gospel. And may Christ your shepherd today. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this good word of hope. This good word of hope that even those who are hard-hearted, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, are made alive by your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would awaken within those who have yet to believe in you a sense of their need, Uh, the fact that they, like sheep, are aimless, defenseless, and will forever wander until they are led by you. So God, would you, even today, gather your sheep, just as we were gathered, not from the fold of Israel, according to the flesh, but we were gathered from the four corners of the world, God, gather even here this morning those who are yours. Give them the ears to hear your effectual call, that they would come, that they would follow, and that they would know the peace of security, of being loved forever and always by the great shepherd of the sheep. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.